Hey, miserable bitches. We are back with another episode of Misery Manor. My name is Cody. My name is Emily. And before we get started, make sure you leave your manners at the door. Hey everybody it's a party in the closet it's a party in the closet because guess what what we have a special guest with us today we do hi guys it's michelle you don't have to get that close <laughs> she's I'm like new at this she's like kissing the microphone <laughs> um so i reference michelle all the time on these episodes. Mm -hmm. So if you've heard her name, this is the Michelle that I'm constantly referring to. We became friends, how old were we? I think it was like freshman year of high school. Yeah, like we went to high school. Well, we went to school together, but we really became friends in Spanish class in high school. And we went on like a beach trip together. Oh. And I like- And Cody came out in his tidy whities from the bathroom. Yes. And, and we he was- dancing on this like uh, wooden fencing that was in the beach cabin you remember no that sounds about right twerking and you said baby i said that is gonna be my, my best friend, friend. <laughs> <laughs> and look at us now i remember so michelle was a cheerleader in call, uh, high school and i actually made up her cheer for her i've never cheered in my life and she you won told me and she won captain yeah i'm sorry okay well everyone else knows <laughs> and we actually got in trouble one time when she she was rehearsing, I spit on her. Yes, and yes, remember I was telling you how you used to abuse me. I like spit on her, and then I think you spit back at me. I don't think I did. And they kicked us out, and I was like, "Sorry." Yeah, we got kicked out of the gym. Yeah, I don't think Michelle. We had to be separated in Spanish class. We were bad. Yes, we were so bad. I could not speak a lick of Spanish. I had to cheat on her every day. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was good. It was good. We've had some fun. We used to play the Ouija boards together. Mm -hmm. Like most college people were like, you know, going to parties. We were posted up in a barn exactly. at our friend Kristen's house playing uh, the Ouija board. Yes. Fucking being terrified. One time you had that curfew at like 12 p.m. Oh my God, but yeah. the Ouija board was like not letting us leave. Zozo. Yes. It was oh, like that's Zozo. when her Zozo. dad tried yeah. to like. No, her mom. Oh, no, no, no. But her mom. She, she was like, where are you, you Mr. Curfew? Michelle was like, I'm sorry, but the Ouija board won't let me go. And her mom was like, if you don't get back here, I'm going to haunt your ass. <laughs> I said, you can't leave the Ouija board unless you exit correctly or it'll haunt yeah. you forever. And she said, if you don't get your ass home right now, I'm going to haunt your yes. ass. And yep. Michelle, it was so funny when we were asking it questions. We are like, Michelle, ask it a question. And Michelle goes, what color are my panties? <laughs> it, said white. it said white with a shit mark, remember? <laughs> we were like, evil. oh, this is real. I'm pretty sure it responded a little bit differently, but just like white. sure. Oh, no, no, no. It said your favorite Christmas tree color was white. Remember? I think so. Yeah, something like that. So, yeah, we've had our fair share of um, exciting, fun Adventures. things. Adventures. Did you do anything fun this weekend? No, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, my had all those car problems. Remember, I rained inside the Jeep and then my lights wouldn't work. My wipers wouldn't work. Oh, my God. My that wouldn't that work. Jeep has been more of a curse than a blessing. But they all came on after work today. So that was exciting. they probably draw it out. That's what I was going to say. It needed yeah. to dry out a little bit. Yeah. You had to stick it in some rice. Yeah, I stuck the whole Jeep in rice while I was in the office. And... That's hot. Oh, my God. And also, guys, I don't know if you saw a picture of me if you don't follow my personal Instagram, but I went, what color is my hair? White? Blonde. Platinum. Platinum. Yeah. I'm an ice. Ice, ice baby. Ice queen. I'm serving Elsa. Not only the hair, but the face is frozen from brand new Botox. So, <laughs> you know, we entered 2023 icy. Yeah, and, same. And, and no lice. 
<laughs> All right. So before we get into this episode, which I'm super excited about because I know Michelle and I know she loves the gory. She loves the details. She loves the what the fucks. The Junkos. The Junkos. So I got a story for you. But before, um, we do have two new Patreons this week. We have Lauren and we have Lock Queen K. This is also what happens when Cody asks you to do something, then he just does it. Well, you didn't have Perfect. your phone out. I knew the names Lock Queen K. Lock Queen K. I don't know your real name, but that's what you entered. So that's going to be your name. So thank you so much for being a Patreon. We're going to upload the Patreon episode that we recorded last week. Remember the nuns, the scary yes. nuns. The and then I'll send out your like, little welcome. Oh, you get the new welcome. Yeah, you'll get a Letters. card in the mail. So I did message y'all. And also, Patreons, remember, there's an app that you can download that makes listening a lot easier. So don't forget to go to your app and download Patreon. Do you have the Patreon app, Michelle? No, I don't. Fuck you, <laughs> All right, so let's get into... Is it hot in here? Just a little bit. I'm good. Oh, she I'm did that on purpose, it. so you would have to take your clothes off. Speaking of take the... I just wanted to get you guys in this closet alone with me. Oh. Well, speaking of, like, taking clothes off, so this episode has a lot of, like, gory details and stuff. So, as you know, I'm not going to not say any of the details. So, just be prepared that there's a lot that's going to go on in this, okay? Why'd you just wink at me? Bitch, I didn't have something in my eye. Oh. By the way, just so you know now that there's someone else here, being Cody's friend, he's kind of mean to you sometimes. It just, it's called tough loving, <laughs> ain't it? Because I'd go to bat for y'all, sure but I also is. will beat your ass if I need to. How and I'll do it right back. You know what so I always said? Fine. I will never hit I a lady. I love a good roast. If we can't roast each other, How like it's not love? fun for me. Right. I'll never hit a lady, but I will beat a bitch ass. <laughs> <laughs> so... Let's get started. So on today's episode of Misery Manor, we are going to be discussing the tragic murder of... Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I ran the wrong story. <laughs> I almost said Rebecca Schaefer. Oh, I was like, that well, was hold on. Week. That doesn't make any sense. I have, we already did that one. Okay, let me start like, over. Aren't these like serial killers we're talking about no. today? Yes. Also, okay. on today's episode of Misery Manor, we are going to be discussing serial killers Lawrence Bidtaker and Roy Norris, who stalked, raped, tortured, and killed five teenage girls across Los Angeles in a five-month period in 1979. So Lawrence and Roy even audio recorded some of their horrific torture and murder sessions for their amusement. So they're sick little fookies. So this dangerous duo became known as the Toolbox Killers, not to be confused with the Toy Box Killer, which we did a few months ago on episode 45. We did that like a year ago, but yeah. It was episode 45. We're on 68. So the Toolbox Killers murdered their victims by using devices commonly found in the garage and would use them for torturing their victims for hours and sometimes days before killing them. So this murderous duo was described by FBI Special Agent John E. Douglas as, quote, the most disturbing individuals for whom he has ever created a criminal profile for. So before we get started, let's get into some background information on our murderer, starting with Lawrence Bittaker. So Lawrence Sigmund Bittaker was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on September 27, 1940. Lawrence was an unwanted child of a couple who had chosen to not have children. So as soon as he was born, he was placed in an orphanage by his birth mother and was quickly adopted by Mr. and Mrs. George Bittaker as an infant. So Lawrence's adoptive father worked in the aviation industry, which required the family to frequently move around the United States throughout his childhood. By his early teens, Lawrence was already getting in lots of trouble. He was disruptive. He was angry. He chose to hang out with a horrible, horrible crowd. And although it was reported that Lawrence had an IQ of 138, is that high? No. Is it not? I think it oh, is. Oh, maybe. <laughs> Which means you have a low IQ. <laughs> I think I think an IQ of like 140 is um, above average. Okay. okay. It's pretty good. Okay. So Lawrence considered school to be very tedious. Um, and dropped out of high school in 1957. So he decided a life of crime and living life on the edge was more exciting and thrilling for him. However, before long, he was sent to the California Youth Authority for car theft. 
So Lawrence spent some time there, but was released at age 19. And from then on, he never saw his adoptive parents again, because now he's over the age of 18 and he can kind of do whatever the hell he wants. Um, also, he did find out that his parents were like kind of sick and tired of his behavior and kind of gave him an ultimatum, um, which he did not like. So he's like, fuck you. I'm doing my own thing. Wait, which one of these guys is him? Um, this one right here. No eyebrows? No eyebrows. Yeah, show Michelle a Well, picture. that's why he's so smart. I mean, look how big his head is. I know, all that brain, all that brain. So, um, however, Lawrence did not learn a lesson from serving time. In fact, over the next 15 years, Lawrence was in and out of prison for assault, burglary, and grand theft auto. And how, how old was he? Like 19. Oh, he wasn't even in his 20s. But this is over the next 15 years he committed all those crimes. Okay. So Lawrence would later claim these numerous offenses committed throughout his adolescence had been attempts to compensate for the lack of love he received from his parents. So while in prison, Lawrence was seen by multiple psychiatrists and was eventually diagnosed as being highly manipulative and as, quote, having considerable concealed hostility. So basically a time ball waiting to boom, baby, explode. The time bomb? Yeah. Oh, I think it's a time ball. That too. So the life of crime Lawrence was living just continued and continued escalating as he got older. So in 1974, when Lawrence was 34, he stabbed a supermarket employee who accused him of him, him of stealing. Mm -hmm. The supermarket employee had observed Lawrence stealing a steak and had followed Lawrence outside to the store's parking lot where he approached Lawrence and was like, sir, I think you forgot to pay. Can you come and come back inside and pay for it. And this obviously made Lawrence very upset. So he pulled out a knife and stabbed the worker right in his chest, nearly missing his heart. So as Lawrence tried to flee the scene, two onlookers attacked him, brought him to the ground and called the authorities immediately. So soon he was convicted of assault with a deadly weapon and then sentenced to California's men colony in San Luis Obispo. Mm -hmm. Now, the second part of our murderous duo is Roy Lewis Norris. So Roy Lewis Norris was born in Greeley, Colorado on fe February 5th, 1948. Roy was conceived out of wedlock, resulting in his parents only marrying to avoid the negative social stigma surrounding illegitimate birth at the time. So Roy's father worked in a scrapyard and his mother was a drug addicted housewife. So there was constant instability within his household growing up. Roy occasionally lived with his parents throughout his childhood and adolescence, but was repeatedly placed in the foster care families throughout the state of Colorado. Mm -hmm. So Roy allegedly suffered neglect by these families and that he was uh, placed in. And there were even reports that he experienced sexual abuse by at least one of these families and was continuously denied proper food and clothing. Mm -hmm. So while living with his birth parents at age 16, Roy visited the home of one of his female relatives who was in her early 20s. So Roy began to speak to her in a very sexually suggestive ma manner. And obviously she was disgusted by this and she was like, get the fuck out of my house. When he was 16? When, she when he was 16 and she was in her 20s. So she was disgusted, probably threw up on him, and she ordered him to leave the house. And then she told Roy's father what had happened, who in turn threatened to beat his ass when he got home. But his only introduction, or I guess his introduction into sex was abusive? Maybe the I sexual from abuse the foster? from the foster care. Homes? But then the he went back to his birth. Yes, he was like back and forth with them. Okay. So... Sorry, Michelle. It's not very comfortable, the setup we it's have. Like I have a big butt percussion. <laughs> oh. So, um, so after this instance, not only being embarrassed by being outed, like, for what he had done to her, but also uh -huh. scared that his father would, like, beat his ass, he stole his father's car and drove to the Rocky Mountains, where he actually attempted to commit suicide by injecting pure air into an artery in his arm. <gasps> Oh my God. But he like chickened out That's or he creative. didn't do it. So mm -hmm. he was later apprehended as a runaway and returned to live with his parents. So mm -hmm. upon his return home, Roy's parents who were highly frustrated with him um, and like all of his actions was like, you and your sister are not even wanted here. We did not want to have you both in the first place. In fact, we're going to get a divorce after you're both of age. So we don't have to deal with y'all. That's really sad. So, Roy eventually dropped out of high school. He joined the Navy. He kind of wanted to like live on his own. So he's like, maybe the Navy will teach me discipline, guidance, you know, whatever else. 
So he was stationed in San Diego in 1965 and was deployed to serve in the Vietnam War in 1969. Shortly after, though, he was honorably discharged with the diagnosis of severe schizoid personality by military psychologists. So as you can see, both Roy and Lawrence are both suffering with severe mental health disorders and neglect from their parents at a very early age. So in November of 1969, Roy was arrested for his first known sexual offense. So Roy was charged with both rape and assault with attempt to commit rape to another person. In the incident, he had attempted to force his way into the car of a woman who was all alone. Three months later, in February 1970, Roy attempted to convince a lonely woman into allowing him um, into her home. So when the woman refused and was like, no way, get away from me, he tried to break into her house. So the women quickly uh, called the phone... called the police from their phone who arrested Roy before he had the opportunity to cause any harm to the women. And Roy is the one that was sexually abused. Yes. And now he's doing that. Yeah. So in May of 1970, Roy was on bail for another offense he had committed. When he violently attacked a female student, he had been stalking on campus of San Diego State University. So he repeatedly struck her in the back of the head with a large rock until she fell to her knees before he repeatedly curb stomped her head against the sidewalk um, as he knelt on her lower back. What's a curb stomp? Like, oh re- my gosh. Explain it. Isn't it when you put somebody's teeth like on the curb and then, <gasps> you, and then, you, bash, and then you, you stomp kick, on their head and it breaks? And it breaks like their the jaw. jaw, their How teeth. How do you know what that is? We're from Beaumont. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, like, sometimes when you have attitudes, the first thing that pops in the head is, I'm finna curb stomp her. So just remember that. Have you ever known anyone that that's happened to? No. Oh, my god. That's, like, not a thing. Well, for him, it is. Also, it's, like, how do you even just get somebody's teeth on the cement like that? It's, like, all right. Are they positioned well? Now open up. Now open up, (laughs) Open up, baby. This will only take about two minutes. So, obviously, after that, Roy was arrested and sentenced to serve five years of imprisonment in the state hospital, so where he was classified as a mentally disordered sex offender. So, Roy was released on probation in 1975 for being a very good inmate, and the psychiatrist declared that Roy was, quote, no further danger to others. But sadly, obviously, we're here for a reason. They were far, far wrong. So just three months after his release, Roy approached a 27-year-old woman walking home from a restaurant in Redondo Beach. He came up beside her and said, hey, do you need a ride? I can take you home. It's getting kind of late. However, she was like, no, thank you. I'm fine. Like, my home's right up there. I'm okay. So she continued to walk towards her home. When she declined, Roy parked his motorcycle, came up from behind the woman, grabbed her scarf, twisting it around her neck and whispered in her ear, I'm going to fucking rape you. So Roy dragged her into the nearby bushes as he, as she kicked and tried to get away. Fearing for her life, the woman did not resist the rape though. And luckily for her, she survived the rape and the attack. Once he was done, he just kind of left her there and got back on his motorcycle and took off. Okay. So although she reported the rape um, to the police, they were initially unable to find her attacker. However, one month later, the 27-year-old victim observed uh, Roy's motorcycle and noted the license plate number, which she immediately gave to police. She was like, it's him, it's him, it's him. That's the guy who attacked me. I remember seeing his license plate number. That's him. So they came and he was immediately arrested for the rape and sent it back to California's uh, men's colony in San Luis Obisco. So he's been there like four times now and he keeps getting out. By this Mm -hmm. time, he has a... um, like he has stock in the fucking prison. <laughs> <laughs> like he's been there so many times. I'm like, damn, he's been there so many times. Just know he's going to come back. Right. So keep him. And so, it's all for the same thing. And he's escalating at this point. Right. right. So in 1976, Roy was incarcerated in the same prison as Lawrence, bringing the future toolbox killers together. The two of them would go on to be a match made in hell.
1978, Lawrence and Roy had become close prison acquaintances. Because remember, they're now in prison together. So, and they started sharing dark and twisted sexual fantasies, as well as an obsession with sexual violence against young women. So they had this in common. So Roy told Lawrence in prison, quote, my biggest thrill is being able to instill as much fear as possible in a woman, however that may be. And Lawrence, who is not known to have committed any sexual offenses prior to meeting Roy, mm -hmm. said in response, quote, well, if I ever rape a girl, I would just kill her right then and there. I don't want to leave any witnesses behind. It's too risky. So while in prison, this duo would spend most of their day fantasizing about sexually assaulting and murdering teen teenage girls. In fact, both men promised to one another saying, listen, when we get out of prison, we are going to rape and murder one girl of each teenage year between the ages of 13 and 19 years old. So essentially seven girls. So Lawrence was released in October of 1978, and he returned to Los Angeles and found work as a skilled machinist. So this work earned Lawrence close to $1,000 a week, and he became friendly with several people in his neighborhood. So Lawrence was thought of as a very generous man, and many people that knew him or worked with him said that he was very helpful, he was very kind and super selfless. Lawrence even donated some of his earnings to local char charities in the area. So on one occasion, Lawrence is known to have purchased a large quantity of fast food and wine, which he then handed to the homeless individuals in downtown Los Angeles. So they was getting tipsy underneath oh. the bridge. I'm like, that's the ideal dinner, like some McDonald's and a little and a glass wine, of red. And a little cab <laughs> underneath the bridge, honey. Yes. Was there a reason he picked from ages 13 to 19? No, I, they just had an obsession with younger women. And I guess that just they thought it was cool. They wanted one 13 to 19. But also, when I read that, I was like, so do you go, hey, how old are you? Oh, fuck. Nope. We needed a 14-year-old. We already got a 15-year-old. You yeah. know? <laughs> well, oh, so it is only teenagers. Like that's one like for 13, each year. Through 19. Yep. Then, oh, exactly. That's weird. So after about three months after Lawrence was released from prison in January 1979, Roy was released from prison. So within a month of being let out, Roy set out on his desires that had been stored up in prison, and he actually raped a woman and left her stranded in the middle of the desert. So, but he soon found employment as electrician in Compton, California. So then, as promised, Roy received a letter from Lawrence, so the pair met up and began to put their twisted prison plan into action. So the two guys knew firsthand that abducting teenage girls discreetly wouldn't be an easy task. They knew that they would kick, scream, people would be, you know, looking for them. So mm -hmm. they knew it was going to be kind of tricky. So Lawrence and Roy wanted to make sure that they had all of the necessities before carrying out this plan. So first they knew they needed a suitable and trusting vehicle. So Lawrence said, hey, let's get this van. It's large, no windows in the back with plenty of room, you know, to do whatever in the back. We can just jump out, grab them. It's perfect. And Roy was like, yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Let's get it. So Roy had actually set aside some money in his savings. Um, so he put up all of the cash for the van. And in February of 1979, Roy had officially purchased a silver 1977 GMC Vandura. So a typical, like when you think of a white van that would pick up Girls, that's what it looks like. So it was like new when they bought it. Um, actually, yeah, uh, two years old. I didn't think they made a lot of money. Well, probably at this time. So if you had a thousand a week, didn't the one had make decent money? A thousand a week, four thousand a month. Probably back then, that's a little bit more. Oh, okay, maybe. Who knows? So to them, this van was perfect. So the feature they liked most about this van is that the passenger side sliding door would allow them to pull up to potential victims and grab mm -hmm. them quickly without having to sling the door open and put it back. And they even nicknamed their van, quote, the Murder Mac. Okay. So most people, when they want to perfect their skill at something, let's say cheerleading, soccer, what do they do? They practice, practice, practice. Well, that is exactly what Lawrence and Roy wanted to do for the next five months. So the pair picked up over 20 hitchhikers from February to June of 1979, but they didn't assault the girls. They didn't kill them. Rather, they were just practice runs for them. So they would abduct these girls, then just release them down the road and then console with one another on what went right, what went wrong, 
what to do next time, you know, what to prevent. That way, each time they were getting better at better at what they were doing. But I feel like letting a hitchhiker in your van versus grabbing someone That's and throwing I mean. them in the back is so different. So do they not do anything like that to these women? So you're going to see a lot of these girl, the teens that they pick up are hitchhikers. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I'm wondering what their practice was. Right. So right. they were picking up vulnerable girls who were looking for a ride for you know, whatever reason. So Lawrence and Roy spent most months uh, scouting for secure locations. And in late April, 1979, the two found an isolated road in the San Gabriel mountains that they thought would be the perfect place to carry out their fantasies. Mm -hmm. It was in the middle of nowhere, dark and surrounded by nothingness. So Lawrence snapped a lock on the entry gate with the crowbar and replaced it with his very own for easy access. So in final preparations for their sick and twisted plans to come alive, Lawrence and uh, Roy created a toolbox for the torture. They brought um, plastic tape, pliers, rope, knives, ice picks, sledgehammers, you name it, as well as a Polaroid camera and a tape recorder to document their torture sessions. So this was the final touch. And now the toolbox killers were ready to indulge in their sadism. Mm -hmm. So according to the book, Disguise of Sanity, uh, Serial Mass Murders, Lawrence had also dreamed of building a small town where he would bring and imprison kidnapped teenage girls where they would remain chained naked and tortured and forced into sex acts. Like a fucked up Monopoly. Keep dreaming. Or like a cult. (laughs) Monopoly. Well, you like build towns, don't you? Oh, yeah. Is this one with schizophrenia? Yeah. Okay. He's like the mastermind. Oh, for sure. Yes. So between June and September of 1979, Lawrence and Roy abducted, raped, and killed five teenage girls ranging in ages from 13 to 17. The two of them would kidnap teens in their van, drive the victims to the mountain where they inflicted unimaginable pain from their toolbox assortment. The girl screams forever lost in the mountain canyons. So now this is going to get to the part where we're going to talk about the nitty gritty. This is why we're here, right? So this mm-hmm. is where we're going to talk about the victims. Okay. So Lawrence's and Lawrence and Roy's first victim was 16 year old Lucinda Lynn Schaefer and was, and she was killed on June 24th, 1979. Oh, so they didn't have to do it in order. No. Okay. And so since they only had five, they, they Skip, didn't even they missed out on a couple. Their, their goals. No. So Good. Lucinda was last seen leaving a pres pres How do you say that word? Presbyterian. Presbyterian? <laughs> Almost said pres. Someone's pes- not religious. <laughs> Almost said pedestrian. Last seen leaving a pedestrian. What is it? <laughs> Presbyterian. Presbyterian. Presbyterian church meeting in Redondo Beach. And unfortunately, it was perfect timing for the murderous duo. So Lawrence and Roy had first finished constructing the right bed um, and Ew. installed it in the rear of their van. So they were ready to rumble. So beneath the bed, they placed torture tools, clothes, and a cooler filled with beer and soft drinks. So at approximately 11 a.m., the pair said, quote, they drove to the beach area drinking beer, smoking grass, and flirting with girls. We had no set routine. So at approximately 7.46 p.m., after almost a full day, Roy spotted Lucinda walking down the street and tapped Lawrence on the shoulder and was like, hey, look at that cute little blonde over there. So the pair went up to Lucinda to try to entice her into their van. Mm -hmm. They went up to her and was like, hey, cutie, do you need a ride? It's way too late for you to be walking alone. We actually have some weed in here if you want to smoke with us. Come on, let's take you home. However, Lucinda was like weary of these guys. And she was like, no, 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 no. Thank you. I'm fine. I'm not far from home. Like, I'm good. Thank you, though. However, they were not going to give up yet. So they had a different plan. So Lawrence and Roy were like, all right, well, get home safe. And they drove further ahead on the road and parked alongside a driveway. So Roy then exited the vehicle, opened the passenger sliding door, leaned into the van with his head and shoulders obscured from the view from the door. Mm -hmm. And so when Lucinda eventually walked past the van, Roy exchanged a few words. He was like, oh, you know, nice seeing you again. And then he grabbed her and dragged her into the van, closing the door behind her. That's horrifying. So Lucinda was kicking. She was screaming. She was screaming like, help me, please. Somebody help. But Lawrence drowned her screams out by turning the radio to full volume as Roy bound her arms and legs and gagged her with duct tape 
as Lawrence drove Lucinda to the like the road, like this little fire exit road and the San Gabriel Mountains. So despite initially screaming when she was abducted, Lucinda quickly regained her composure. In his written account of the night that followed, Lawrence wrote that Lucinda, quote, displayed a magnificent state of self-control and composed acceptance of the conditions of which she had no control over. She shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming. So, mm. now at the secluded area, Roy first raped Lucinda and told Lawrence, Quote, go take a walk while I do this. Come back in an hour and I'll be done. So upon returning to the van, Roy was done. And now it was Lawrence's turn to have his way with Lucinda. So this back and forth rape of her continued and continued for a few hours. And then upon the second occasion when she was raped by Roy, Lucinda asked him, quote, do you plan on killing me? Oh my to which Roy replied, no. In response, Lucinda said, well, and this is quote, if you decide at any point to kill me, can you please allow me time to pray before doing it? Please, that's all I ask. I already know you're going to kill me. Just let me pray. So Roy and Lawrence then are, because remember, she was coming back from the Presbyterian Church. So Roy and Lawrence then argued back and forth in front of Lucinda if they should kill her or release her. They were like, no, let's do it. No, let's not. Like, you know, back and forth. Ultimately, they decided in an effort to not get caught, and that it's their first victim, that they should just go ahead and kill her. So Lucinda, hearing this, pleaded, only for a second, can I please pray? But Roy grabbed her and attempted to manually strangle her with his hands. Oh However, after approximately 15, 45 seconds of strangling her, he became too disturbed at, quote, the look in her eyes. So he ran to the front of the van and vomited and nearly hyperventilated. So Lawrence then ran to the back of the van and took matters into his own hands and manually strangled Lucinda until she collapsed to the ground and began convulsing. He then twisted a wire coat hanger around her neck with <gasps> vice grip that. pliers until Lucinda's convulsion ceased and she was dead. Lucinda was denied her request to pray before Lawrence and Roy killed her. What's that called? Like Horrible. Murder. It starts with a T. Uh, uh, Tarot. Turant, turn turret, turnpike. Nope, turret's so the thing. Turn turnkit. I don't know. A turnkit. Tourniquet. 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 There you I go. I think that's what it is. So, yes. So Lucinda's right. body was wrapped in a plastic shower curtain and thrown over a steep canyon. According to Roy, after Lawrence had thrown Lucinda over the canyon, Lawrence assured him, "Quote, the animals would eat her up, so there wouldn't be any evidence left. We're good." A shower curtain. Like a plastic shower curtain, like the so line. So that they like bought those purposely to yeah. wrap bodies. Yeah, in. and okay. then threw her off the edge. So, um, and then the depravity of which they inflicted on their victims increased for their second victim, Andrea Hall. So on July eighth, nineteen seventy nine, after two weeks after the murder of Lucinda, Lawrence and Roy encountered eighteen year old Andrea Joy Hall hitchhiking along the uh, Pacific Coast Highway. So as the pair laid their eyes on her, they thought that she would be perfect for them. The pair slowed the van down and planned to try their usual tactic to offer her a ride or some sort of like marijuana. However, another vehicle actually pulled over and offered Andrea uh, the exact same thing, which she accepted and hopped into the car. Damn, she's a popular I, little right? hitchhiker. So, but they were not going to let Andrea get away that easy. So Lawrence and Roy decided to follow the vehicle from the distance until Andrea exited the vehicle in uh, Redondo Beach. So on this occasion, Roy hid in the back of the van in order to trick Andrea into thinking uh, Lawrence was traveling alone. So Lawrence approached Andrea and said, hey, do you need a ride anywhere? Or would you like a cold beverage? Andrea kindly accepted his offer, saying, yes, thank you. That would be great. Girl, you wanted a Dr. Pepper? <laughs> so inside the van, Lawrence offered her a cold drink from the cooler in the rear of the van. So Roy, who had been hiding behind a bedspread in the rear of the van, oh pounced God. on Andrea when she attempted to retrieve her drink. That's so scary. Terrifying. I mean, that's scary, but also, like, how was he hiding? Well, he was behind the bedspread. Well, I mean, was he just like this? Yeah, he came out like a ghost. Well, maybe he was like laying down in the back and there was like a cooler back there. Oh, I'd already be and like, damn, said, I'm in the... Ah! He said, <laughs> I don't like any of those scenarios. No, this would make me shit my pants. 
Oh, one hundred percent. They would tell me to leave. What if he was like, "No, not the Dr Pepper, only the Coke." <laughs> <laughs> Those are mine. Save them. Those are mine. So Andrea, who was a tough girl, put up quite a fight. She was like, "Get the fuck off me!" Like, what the fuck are you doing? And after a strenuous fight, Roy managed to subdue her by twisting her arms behind her back, <sighs> causing her to scream in pain. So now, under his control, control. <laughs> <laughs> Roy then gagged Andrea with adhesive tape and bound her wrists and ankles together. So Lawrence and Roy then drove Andrea to a location in the San Gabriel Mountains beyond where they had taken um, Lucinda earlier. At this location, she was raped twice by Lawrence and once by Roy. While Lawrence was raping Andrea for the second time, Roy saw what he believed to be vehicle headlights approaching them. So Roy said, dude, look, somebody's coming. So Lawrence put his hand over Andrea's mouth, pulled her out of the van, dragged her into the nearby bushes to hide as Roy uh, drove in search of the vehicle he thought he had saw. So when Roy returned, the pair drove to a different location farther into the mountains. Mm -hmm. So once there, the duo continued where they left off. Lawrence forced Andrea to walk uphill naked alongside the road and then to perform oral sex on him. Once done, he ordered Andrea to pose for several Polaroid pictures. After that, Lawrence and Roy... But at night? How would they come out? I don't... Do they have flash on this? Yeah, there's a flash on them. On a Polaroid? Yeah, there's flash. So after that, Lawrence and Roy... Or they probably had the, like, vehicle lights Mm. shined on her. So after that, Lawrence and Roy drove Andrea to a third location where Lawrence again walked up Andrea or walked Andrea up a nearby hill, this time as Roy drove to a nearby store to purchase alcohol for them. However, when Roy, Roy returned, uh, Lawrence was alone and in possession of two further Polaroid pictures he had taken, both of which depicted Andrea's face and expressions Roy, uh, Roy later described as being, quote, sheer terror. And as she begged for her life. So Roy was like, where did she go? Where is she? What'd you do with her? And Lawrence informed Roy that he had inserted. Oh, this is horrible. He was like, I killed her. He was like, I inserted an ice pick through her ear. Immediately bursting her eardrum and damaging her ear canal. So she was bleeding out of her ear. Then Lawrence laid her down, struck the ice pick into her other ear and stomped on the handle of it until it snapped in her ear canal. So Andrea at this point was miraculously still alive, but was put out of her pain when she was strangled by Lawrence and thrown off the side of the cliff. They said she was screaming as she went down the hill. Oh my God. Wait, he, both of them pushed her down the hill? No, just Lawrence. Because when Roy got back, he was like, where is she? And he had already taken care of her. So, but this was just the start. So the level of terror, pain, and sexual assault just began uh, escalating for Lawrence and Roy's victims. So on September 2nd, two teenage girls were snatched while hitchhiking. So we have 15-year-old Jacqueline Gilman and 13-year-old Leah Lamp. And Wait, they had, at the same time? Yes, they were together. That's so young. And they had been hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway before Lawrence and Roy came across them as they were resting at the bus stop. So Lawrence and Roy went up to the young girls and said, hey, can we offer you both a ride? Um, we can take you anywhere you want. Come on. So both of the girls were like, sure, thank you so much. Um, so once inside the van, the girls were offered marijuana and they both accepted. So once in the van, Lawrence began to take them to the destination the girls requested but after a while, both girls realized that Lawrence like had steered the van off into a different direction. Mm-hmm. And they were like, where are you going? Nightmare. Like, this is not the right way. Let us out, please. And they began to like jerk on the, um, <gasps> the handle of the van. So when the girls protested, both Lawrence and Roy attempted to address the girls' concerns with just excuses. They're like, oh, we have to take this route. You know, there's Let's... construction. Like, don't worry. We're going to get you where you need to go. So Leah, the 13-year-old, attempted to open the sliding door, but Roy hit her on the back of the head with a bag filled with lead weights, which knocked her out. So her, like, little body was just unconscious on the ground. So Jacqueline then reacted, and she she was like, what the fuck are you doing? Leave her alone. Like, let us go. It began to hit and attack Roy. However, she was not strong enough to put up a fair fight, and before she knew it, she was being overpowered by him. So once he had her under control, he began to bind and gag Jacqueline. 
So around this time, Leah uh, regained consciousness. And then again, she tried to get out of the van, but she was just too slow. So therefore, Roy twisted her arm behind her back and dragged uh, her to the back of the van. So Lawrence, fed up that the girls were trying to escape, pulled the van over, punched Jacqueline square in the face, Ah. and assisted Roy in binding and gagging the two girls. So once secured... Jacqueline and Leah were driven to the San Gabriel Mountains, where they were held captive for two days. I'm sorry. I'm still stuck on the ice pick thing. Like, I can't get it out of my brain. So, they were there for two days, being bound and gagged between repeated instances of sexual and physical abuse. So, as they raped Jacqueline, she begged and pleaded with them, quote, Please stop. You're hurting me. I'm only 15 years old. Please. So both men slept in the van alongside Leah and Jacqueline Ew. with each all um, like acting as a lookout as the other one slept. So on one occasion, Lawrence walked Leah to a nearby hill and forced her to pose for pornographic pictures before returning her to the van. This is a 13-year-old. So Lawrence also saw Roy take several Polaroid pictures of himself and Jacqueline, both nude and clothed and while being raped. In the first of the three instances when, uh, in which Lawrence raped Jacqueline, he also created a tape recording of himself raping her. Um, in the audio, audio recording, Lawrence told Jacqueline to, quote, just act like my cousin. Oh, oh my God. While he raped her. He would also torment Jacqueline by saying. Like she knows how his what? cousin acts. Right. Thank you, cuz. <laughs> like, I don't understand that. Also, the camcorders in the 70s are huge. Right. It was a whole production. So he would also torment Jacqueline by asking, quote, tell me why we shouldn't kill you. Give me a reason. And she would respond with something like, I'm young. I have my whole life ahead of me, please. Like, I won't say a word about this. they get off on, like, the terror. Right. But the men would just laugh and continue to just abuse her. So Lawrence is known to have tortured Jacqueline by stabbing her breast with the ice pick, like slicing them open. And he used vice grip pliers to tear off her nipples. Oh! I do want to note that neither Lawrence or Roy raped Leah Lamb, the 13-year-old. They did not rape her. That's surprising. So after two days of pure terror and torture, Lawrence took his ice pick and struck it through Jacqueline's ear, then strangled her with the coat hanger and pliers, laughing through it all until she was dead. At trial, Roy claimed that he suggested that Jacqueline be killed quickly because, unlike Leah, Jacqueline had been cooperative throughout the period of her captivity and torture. However, this request was quickly shot down by Lawrence, who replied, no, they only die once anyway. Who cares? Okay. So with Jacqueline now dead, the two decided it was time to take care of the 13-year-old Leah Lamb. So Lawrence forced Leah to exit the van, and she did as she was told. Upon exiting the sliding door, uh, Lawrence shouted at her, quote, You wanted to stay a virgin? Now you can die a virgin. Roy then took a sledgehammer and started swinging at her like a live pinata. As she fell to the ground in pain, Lawrence jumped on top of her and choked her, and Roy continued to strike her forehead with a hammer to bash in her head. Eventually, and he was the one that threw up from strangling someone in the beginning. Right. So eventually the cries and screams from 13-year-old Leah just went silent. Oh. So Lawrence and Roy had believed that Leah had died, but suddenly Leah opened her eyes. Stop. And oh, my started... God. No, I would have never opened my eyes. I know. And I would have acted dead. I don't even think she probably realized right. that. No, I think she was just like in shock and she started screaming. So noticing this. Roy again bludgeoned her repeatedly as Lawrence continued to strangle her to death, and both girls' bodies were finally thrown down the side of the mountain. Were they wrapped again? I don't think so. So no body has been found yet. I'm going to get there. Okay. So now let's talk about their final victim, Shirley Ledford. Now this is going to be the worst one, right? Oh my so, god! Wait, on the level of no, zero to Junko. Well, it's going to not like Junko Furuto, but so the repeated rape, unspeakable brutality, and horrific torture that Lawrence and Roy inflicted on sixteen-year-old Shirley was all recorded for their sick enjoyment, which. I will refer to throughout this portion of the episode. And just so you know, the the tape that was shown to the jury is 16 minutes long and you can hear her screaming. I have, and I found the full transcript. Oh, but you didn't find the recording. No, that's not released. I have screams of it. So I might insert it 
somewhere in here, but I'll let y'all, we'll see if it sounds good. Okay. Um, but I did find the transcript. So if you're a Patreon, I'm going to upload it into our Patreon so that you can um, get, have access to everything that he said and like her, what she but said. But it's back. just the transcript it's, being read. It's not the recording. No, it's just like, it's um, like typed out transcript of what she said, okay. what he said. Um, so if you want to be a Patreon, it's in our Instagram uh, bio. Okay. So let's get into their final victim, Shirley. So late on Halloween night, 1979, Shirley wrapped up her shift at a restaurant and was headed to a Halloween party in her colleague's car. However, at some point, for whatever reason, Shirley decided to walk or hitchhike home rather than go into the party. How old is Shirley? She is 16. 30 killed a 16-year-old. I know. So I don't think they really cared about 13, 14, 15, 17, 18, 19. So, um, but she didn't end up going to the Halloween party. She, maybe she's like us and wanted me and Michelle tried to go out and we had to stop and get like Pepto-Bismol and Tums. So maybe she's like, you know what? I ain't doing <laughs> True. this. So, um, so she got out of her colleague's car and soon she was picked up by a vehicle to be brought home. And that vehicle was the murder Mac with Lawrence and Roy inside. So oh, sh- Shirley might have entered the vehicle because Lawrence was actually a regular at her restaurant. So Shirley entered the van and was like, thank you so much. I'll give you directions to my home. It's not that far away. That's so, honestly something I would do. You yeah. think it's a regular client, you know? Yeah, I'm like, hey. Yeah. Right. Innocent. So Lawrence and, uh, Lawrence and him also offered Shirley some marijuana to which she declined. So the duo was quickly uh, was quick to get into action. So with Lawrence's tape recording running, Shirley was immediately bound and gagged with construction tape. So Lawrence then traded places with Roy, who drove the van for about an hour as Lawrence remained with Shirley in the back of the van. After removing the construction tape from her mouth and legs, Lawrence tormented Shirley by slapping and mocking her, then beating her with his fist as he repeatedly shouted for her to say something like he was furious that she wasn't saying something. So then as Shirley began screaming as loud as she could, Lawrence yelled back, scream louder. So as Shirley continued screaming, Lawrence began asking her a series of questions as he hit her. He was like, what's the matter? Don't you like to scream, Shirley? So it's like... How do you like being looked at when he's saying this stuff? So as Shirley began to cry in fear and in pain, she pleaded with Lawrence repeatedly saying like, no, don't touch me. Like in through all of the transcripts, she just constantly says like, like, don't touch me. You knew this, like kind of knew this. Like that's creepy. I know. So in response, Lauren again ordered her to scream as loudly as she possibly could. So as she began to scream, he began striking her with a hammer, beating her breast with his fist and hammer and Uh torturing her vagina with pliers. Oh my God. Like torturing. Yeah. Like sticking (gasps) pliers up her vagina. Oh, um inside her rectum as well so in the audio tapes shirley can be heard pleading for the abuse to stop and making statements such as oh no no please as sounds of lawrence like taking out you can hear like the sledgehammer come out of the box like him like (gasps) dragging it along like the side of the van and stuff um or like him taking out different tools and stuff so roy later described hearing quote screams constant screams coming from Shirley from the rear of the van as he drove. So shortly after Roy switched places with Lawrence, it was now his turn to have his way with Shirley. So he turned the tape recorder on and began recording the session. Roy first sharded sharded, (laughs) Roy first shouted for Shirley to quote, go ahead and scream or I'll make you scream. In response to this, Shirley pleaded, I'll scream if you stop hitting me. Then Shirley can be heard giving some high pitched screams. Roy was like, yes, yes, yes. Don't stop till I tell you to. Like he loved it. That's disgusting. Roy decided to take things up a notch, so he then reached for his sledgehammer as Shirley, seeing him do this, screamed in pure fear. She was like, oh no, 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 no. So Roy then struck Shirley a few times on the upper left elbow, and in response, Ow. in response, Shirley said, you broke my elbow, it's broken. And he said, no, it's not, I barely hit you. And she said, don't hit me again. 
So, but Roy being the monster, he did not care. So he again raised the sledgehammer as Shirley repeatedly screamed, no, no, no. Then Roy proceeded to strike Shirley 25 consecutive times on the same elbow with the sledgehammer. Stop. Before, I would have passed out. Bef- what is that word? Sniveling? 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 So before asking her, quote, what are you sniveling about? <laughs> I would be like, I don't fucking know. I'm like, I don't know what that word is. Is it supposed to be sniffling? Like, is she crying? No, because this was a quote from like the. Okay, well, we're going to have to Google that after this. So, um, so obviously, Shirley continued to scream and cry. So, Roy said, so Roy said, this is what he said in court. So, Roy said this at, at his trial. He said, quote, We've all heard women scream in horror films. Still, we know that no one is really screaming. Why? Simply because an actress can't produce some sounds that convince us that something vile and heinous is actually happening. If you ever heard the tape that we recorded, there was just no possible way that you'd not be crying and trembling yourself. I doubt you could listen to more than uh, a full 60 seconds of it. So he's like proud of what they recorded. Right. Okay, so the action of crying and sniffling in a feeble or fretful way. So she was crying. Okay. He was like basically saying like, why why are you crying? So in April of 1997, after approximately two hours of captivity, Roy killed Shirley by strangling her with a wire coat hanger, which he tightened with pliers. Shirley did not react much to the act of strangulation as she was already beat to a bloody pulp and like exhausted from the torture. Mm -hmm. Um, It was reported that Shirley died with her eyes wide open, maybe from being strangled. So Lawrence then decided to dispose of her body on a random lawn in a nearby neighborhood in order to view, um, they wanted to view the reaction from the press. So see, I guess none of the other bodies have been found then. No, they have. Oh, they have? Some of them. So the pair drove to a randomly selected house where Roy discarded Shirley's dead body in a bed of ivy um, upon the front lawn. And in, Could you imagine going out to get your like paper in the morning? And seeing that? So yeah, so the next morning, Shirley's body was found by a jogger on a jog. Oh, so an autopsy revealed that in addition to have being sexually violated, she had died of strangulation after uh, receiving extensive blood force trauma to the head, face, breast, and left elbow, mm-hmm. um, and having multiple fractures all over her head. Oh. To add, her vagina and rectum, again, were torn open Stop the in one, a, hole. one hole. Oh, And caused by Lawrence having inserted pliers and different bats and stuff inside her vagina Fuck. and her rectum. In addition, Shirley put up a fight as her left hand had puncture wounds and the finger on her right hand had been slashed open. So Roy, who was actually super proud of what he had done to these young girls, couldn't hold in his secret and revealed the pair's rapes and murders to another rapist he had been incarcerated with named Joseph Jackson. However, I guess Joseph was like a changed man and he notified the police via his attorney of what they had told him. Um, It was like, look, you need to like talk to this dude. He said he raped all these girls like you need to talk to him. Um, so Roy was arrested for a parole violation on November 20th, 1979. And Lawrence was arrested for rape at his motel the same exact day. So they were probably watching him and waiting for him to do something. Yep. So the investigators decided to search Roy's apartment and revealed a bracelet that belonged to Shirley. While in Lawrence's motel room, police found numerous photographs and other incriminating evidence. Investigator... Investigators seized and searched Lawrence's silver van, where they seized several items, including several cassette tapes, one of which contained Shirley's torture session. Also found at the homes of both Lawrence and Roy were pictures of almost 500 teenage girls and young women, most of which had apparently been taken at Redondo Beach and Hermosa Beach, and a few of the girls had been taken from um, by Lawrence at Burbank High School. Most of these pictures had been taken without the girl's knowledge or consent. Could you imagine being one of those people? No. So Shirley's mother actually had to listen to the tapes of her daughter's murder to confirm that it was her daughter on the recording. So she heard her screaming, her pleading, her begging for life. And investigators also confirmed the voices on the tape belonged to Lawrence and Roy. So at the start, Lawrence initially denied all accusations and was like, no, that's not me. No way. I would never do that. But then when he was faced with the evidence, like the audio and all that and the pictures, he was like, okay, I did it. And he confessed to five murders. 
So Roy was seeking a plea deal to save him from the death penalty and told investigators, look, I'll tell you everything that happened. I promise if you just let me have a plea deal. So Roy agreed to lead investigators to the San Gabriel Mountains and search for the bodies of the girls whose abduction and murder um, he had confessed to doing. So despite extensive searches of the areas where he stated the bodies of Lucinda and Andrea had been discarded, both of their bodies were never found. So Lucinda and Adrian and Andrea were never found. The first two, right? Um, so Andrea was the second, and then yeah, Lucinda was, was with first, Leah. Right? She was oh, a 15 year the fifteen-year-old. Gotcha. So on February 9th, nineteen eighty, the skeletonized bodies of Leah and Jacqueline were found at the bottom of the canyon, alongside a dry body of water. So eerily enough, an ice pick was still lodged in the skull of Jacqueline. Mm. You said it broke off. Yep, and Leah's skull had multiple indicate indentations, which was evidence that the um, of the numerous hammer blows that Roy said he had inflicted. So now Roy Nor uh, Norris pleaded guilty, sparing him the death penalty, and on May 7, 1980, was sentenced to 45 years to life with parole eligibility in 2010. So Lawrence Bittaker's trier trial began on January 19, 1981. Roy testified about their shared history and the five murders committed by them. So introducing photographic evidence, a witness from Lawrence's motel testified that he had been shown naked photos of distressed girls by Lawrence. And he had been told by Lawrence that some of them had even been killed because Lawrence lived in a motel because he was just kind of hopping He's along. A transient, yeah. So another 17 year old girl came to the stand and testified that Lawrence had played her a cassette tape to watch. And apparently uh, it was the rape of Jacqueline. And according to court records, um, this this all came true. So the 17-minute horrifying audio of Shirley Ledford's torture, rape, and murder had to be played for the jury. So obviously many of the jury cried, they screamed, they buried their heads into their hands. And the uh, prosecutor, Stephen Kay, listened to the audio, broke out into tears, and actually had to leave the courtroom for a moment to compose himself. So there was no video. It was, it was just, just audio, audio. and okay. Polaroid pictures. Not that that's like... Right. Butter, but. So uh, Stephen, the prosecutor, stated to reporters that were gathered outside of the courtroom, quote, everybody who has heard the tape has had it affect their lives. I just picture those girls, how alone they were when they died. So the reporters questioned him whether they thought the audio tape should have been played and introduced to the jury as evidence, given the obvious emotional trauma caused to many in the courtroom. And Stephen simply said, quote, you're darn right it should have been played. The jury needs to know exactly what these guys did, which I agree. They kind of warn you about that kind of stuff. I don't know about the whole 17. It's so hard to say because it's like, that really will ruin your life. You'll never go back to normal. I, I think know. they do like provide therapy though. I yeah, mean, they do. Like this. A lot of them, they do provide therapy and a lot of them, they like put you in hotel rooms I mean, and stuff Yeah, afterwards. maybe a little clip, but like, do you need the full whole 17. 17 minutes? I guess they were worried that like, some some would some part would not yeah. you know resonate with the jury kinda so funky. um okay so lawrence actually sat through this whole thing smiling and laughing as they played the audio tape oh i saw pictures of him yeah so, laughing in court right so roy had testified and said that lawrence actually amused himself by playing the tapes out loud when they drive drove in their van he said that he would try to play music sometimes and Lawrence would say, no, 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 put on Shirley's tape. Let's, let's listen to it. So like he was getting off to that. So on February 5th, Lawrence testified himself denying rape and denying murder, saying, no, I paid these girls for sex. They consented to the sex and asked me to take the photos of them. I did not kill them and I did not rape them. There's no way. So as the trial came to a closing, prosecutor Stephen told the jury, quote, if the death penalty is not appropriate in this case, when will it ever be? Yeah. So on February 17th, the jury found Lawrence guilty of five counts of first-degree murder, as well as several other charges. Now, on February 19th, Lawrence was sentenced to death. And on death row, after various appeals, Lawrence never, ever expressed any sort of remorse for his crimes. In fact, he was quite proud of what he had done. Lawrence actually autographed several items in prison with the name Pliers Bidtaker. 
So Lawrence died in the state prison on December 13th, 2019. <gasps> That's and, my grandpa's birthday. And Roy died in prison of natural causes on February 24th, 2020. So like recently, both of them. Oh, shit. So in the aftermath of the toolbox killers, Stephen Kay, the prosecutor reporting, uh, um, he said he had reoccurring nightmares. According to the Daily Breeze, he would be rushing to Lawrence's van to prevent harming uh, harm coming to the girls, but he would always get there too late. And he said he had this dream weekly. See what Michelle said? Like that's, and he's a prosecutor. Right. So this part is really sad. So uh, Paul Benham, the chief investigator of the murders, died by suicide on December 1987. He was only 39 years old. He had actually wrote a 10-page suicide note and specifically referred to the murders committed by Lawrence and Roy as haunting him and that he could not take it anymore. And he was so fearful what they would do when they were released from prison. So he killed himself. That's what I thought was crazy that he only got 45 years. Yes, but they both just ended up dying in prison. Right, thank God. So, meanwhile, Shirley Ledford's tape is retained by the FBI, and today it is used to this day to train FBI agents about the reality of torture and murder, and they use the tape to desensitize them for things that they're going to come across. So it's in, like, the training manual for FBI agents, because that's how horrible it is. Um, And after we end this, because that was the end of this episode, I'll play the clip that I was able to find. It's just screaming. Um, but it's still, you can just hear the pure. So it is, you did find part of it. I found part of it, but I didn't find the, um, dialogue. like the dialogue of it, but I found the dialogue in How a How do written, you know that it's really Because it's then. from a court case. So you can do, you can't show like, that's too much for them to like show like the, um, actual like verbiage of it, but they have it written out. And you've already listened to it? I've only listened to the screams. You can't find anything else, but you can find the. Was it terrible? Hmm. Sounds like somebody screaming, like, Fire! it's really sad. It's like, high. I don't think Michelle wants to hear I'm it. I'm scared. But, um, but like I said, I'm going to post on Patreon, the transcript and, y- and y'all can read it. Um, it's disgusting. He's like, he's like saying, and like, this is only, sorry to interrupt, but this is only Shirley's. So he, they recorded all of them, but hers was like the whole process. Okay. And I think they knew that it was like going to be their final one. So they kind of just like threw everything they could at her. Because in like That's one of one of the scenes, funny. he's like, um, like she has his dick in her mouth, and he she's like, "Tell me that you want to suck it and stuff," and she's like, "No, I don't." Like she's saying, "I don't want to." He's like, "No, tell me you want to." Like he's getting mad at her, and he's like hitting her and stuff. Because um, in the transcript, it says like what's happening. So it's mm-hmm. like at this point, Lawrence goes and takes a sledgehammer from so you can follow it so you can get an image of what's happening through it it's it's pretty creepy but yeah that's that episode michelle thank you so much for coming thanks for having me yeah we'll have to have you back maybe you can do an episode oh i'm down (laughs) as your busy schedule i won't won't tell it as good as you do she'd be like okay so i have this one little article poetry (laughs) oh yeah like help me All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. Have a wonderful week. We are going to be uploading this tomorrow. So obviously, if you're listening to it, we uploaded it. Yep. But, Rate, um, review, subscribe. subscribe. Bye. Bye. Oh, were you going to say anything else? No. Oh, okay. Bye.